Thank you, praise team. Isn't that what it's all about? Well, as we get into Romans, I cannot think of a more appropriate message than what we've heard in the music this morning that has to do with what we're learning about in, in uh, the book of Romans. We've been studying Romans. We've been studying what making sense of what matters most, and that's the gospel. And that's really what matters most. Can you think of anything that, that matters more than the good news what we just sang about. There's nothing out there any better than that. As we've been looking at uh, the outline of, of Romans, we were talking about the righteousness of God. We started with sin, and we've been talking about sin really for the last several weeks. And today we're leaving sin. Isn't that a great thing? Doesn't it feel good to be out of sin? Yeah, and uh, we're entering the topic of salvation. And I'm glad that that we've studied sin. It's helped me understand a lot of the world that's going on around. It helps me understand a lot of what's going on, even in my own heart. Uh, But I'm glad that the gospel of Romans does not end in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Aren't you? And that starting in chapter 3, verse 21, we begin to see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so last week we talked about the des- a description from man, of mankind from God's perspective, how he views mankind. And was it a pretty picture? Not really. But the more we understand sin, the more we begin to understand how God views us. And so that's where we'll pick up in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, we'll read through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What a clear presentation of the heart of the gospel. Amen? What a clear presentation of the heart of the gospel. You know, though, when we, we see back in verse 21, it begins with, now, uh, or it says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. This is not the first time we've heard that language in the book of Romans. That should sound a little bit familiar when we hear about what's being revealed. And it's like Paul saying, and now it's time for such and such to be revealed. This is not the first time. This is the second time that we've seen it in, in the book of Romans. And so there are two great things to be revealed, two great revelations that we've come across so far, and they go hand in hand. Do you remember what the first one was? If we go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, what did Paul say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That's what we find in in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Starting in verse 19 all the way through to Romans 3.20 is an explanation that supports this one idea. And that is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness, which simply means we take God out of the equation, 
and the unrighteousness, that's the behavior that follows, and we suppress the truth by our wickedness. So the first great revelation that we find in the, in the book of Romans is the wrath of God. And it's important that we understand the wrath of God. In fact, this is what we, have, we, we learn for those who uh, haven't been here each week. Just in a nutshell, we, we see that the law existed to expose our sin. And so God gave us the law, not to get saved by the law, not to earn our salvation, nothing like that. But the law exposes the fact that we have sin in our lives. So what we learned about the wrath of God is, number one, that it's deserved. You know, God is completely just to condemn us for our sins. Isn't that true? I don't hear too many amens to that, but, but we all know it's true, right? It's a sobering thought. But you know what? If God condemned me, he would be just in condemning me. It's deserved. We learned that men are without excuse. All men are without excuse. We learned that the godless and the religious alike are equally guilty. The godless are guilty because by nature we, we don't give God the glory that's due to him. And so we, because of that, we, we fall into acts of impurity. We follow our sinful natures. And then when that runs its course, what do we do? We follow our, or we go beyond our sinful natures and we get involved in acts of indecency. The, the example that Paul used was homosexuality. Of course, there's none of that in our culture, right? No, of course there is. We see that happening. And then it goes on beyond that to the point where he turns us over to a completely depraved mind uh, where we are no longer bearing the image of God with, our, uh, with the way we live our lives. At any, at any extent. And we see that. Or the religious then think, well, but that's not me. But what we learned about the religious is that the religious people have the law, but they break the laws anyway. No one is able to keep all the law. So then that makes, makes us blasphemers of the justice of God. So who's guiltier, if that's a word? No, we're all guilty. That's what it means when it says there is no difference. So whether you're religious, whether you're a, a relatively good person or whether you're a pagan, whatever it might be, guess what? We're all guilty before God. So the application that we found last week, and we saw this in the example that, that uh, Romans gives of David, but there's this desire to be clean. The law exposes our sin, and when we realize the depth of our sin, now we want to be clean. Have you ever had that happen where, where you didn't realize you were dirty, and then someone points it out to you and said, oh, you sat in something, and now you're embarrassed? Right? You're, oh, I don't want to walk around because I sat on a chocolate bar. It might look like something else. I don't know. And, and so we, we, when we know, when, we have, when we're exposed to it, now we, are, we have that desire to be clean. And then we saw last week as well that we, we should beg for mercy. We come to that point, and that's what the law does. It helps us understand our sinfulness so that we realize our need. And we are willing to come to that place where we're humble enough to beg for mercy from God. That's where we left off last week. And it's at this point, at this point, that we come to Romans 3.21. It says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed and witnessed by the law and the prophets. Something that I, I want to I think through that's interesting here is notice that it is only when we understand God's wrath that the gospel of righteousness is brought into the picture. Because it's, it's important that we understand the depth of God's wrath. It's important to understand the depth of our sin. Or guess what? The good news doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Does it? See, the law brings acknowledgement of sin, and then we beg for mercy. That's when God offers the good news. Remember what Jesus said? I have come to seek and to save whom? 
that which was lost. So if you're not lost, is he seeking for you? If you think you're found, then, he, then you're not the one he's seeking for. In, in fact, he, he goes on uh, uh, later and says, it says, oh, if you're not lost, well, then I'm not seeking for you. Or if you're not sick, then I'm not here to heal you. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to heal those who were sick. And, and so that's an important part. So those who try to bypass the acknowledgement of sin when it comes to the gospel are preaching a false gospel. Isn't that true? If you preach the good news without preaching the bad news, then you're not preaching the whole news. And if it's not the whole news, it is not the true gospel. And so we have to be very careful in, in our understanding of, of salvation. In fact, uh, one of the consequences is this, is that many people have a false hope. A false hope is when you think that you're saved, but you have believed in a false gospel, and you'll be surprised. Remember what Matthew 7 said? Jesus said, many, we talk about in the judgment, many have cried, uh, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of people that will be surprised at the judgment because they think they're saved, but they will find out they are not ever saved. And those words, depart from me for I never knew you, will haunt them for eternity. Right? And, and so we see this false hope. When I was a, a, a program director at Lake Ann Baptist Camp, uh, one of the things that um, well, a friend of mine and I had the horrible job of doing is we went to the bog because we take kids on a bog walk and, and sphagnum moss would grow on top of the water, and it would, if, if it, it would grow thick enough that it was like the whole pond was a waterbed, kind of. And so we'd take the kids out there. It was a lot of fun. But sometimes what would happen is if a deer or something would run through, before the sphagnum moss was thick enough to support it, they would fall through and they would drown. And then some more sphagnum moss would cover the top, and you couldn't tell, uh, you couldn't tell the difference between where the hole was and the rest of it. And so you could be walking along, and you'd step into a hole, and the next thing you know, you're like this, and the water's up here, and you're stuck. You can't get out. And we, they called those false bottoms, and I had the job of finding those. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was part of my job. And that, so we could develop a route that we would take the kids where they would be safe, and, and my friend and I would go together so that when that would happen, all of a sudden we'd fall into one, then the other person was there to lift us out. And it's that false bottom. And a lot of people are, have a false bottom when it comes to their salvation thinking that, oh, well, I've asked Jesus Christ into my heart, or I said a prayer when I was a little child, or whatever it might be, without understanding what the gospel really is about. That has to do with their sinfulness. And if there's never an acknowledgement of sinfulness, then there isn't the real gospel there. Amen? Amen. When you think of the rich ruler that came to Jesus, he said, what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus said, well, oh, nothing. Here, here, it's a free gift. Just, is that what he did? He said, well, you have to keep all the law. Because right? if you're going to talk about doing, you better keep all the law. And what did the rich ruler say? Oh, I've done that. I've kept all the law. Was he lost in his mind? No. Was he sick? No. So Jesus said, okay, well then, let me give you a few examples. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Well, I can't do that. Oh, well, then I guess you're guilty of coveting. <laughs> so you're not keeping all the law. And he didn't, lead, he didn't lead, he didn't give him the gospel right then and there. Why? Because he wasn't ready for it. Because he was not acknowledging his sin. In fact, in his mind, he was sinless. In his mind, oh, I've kept all the law. That, and Jesus said, that's not the time. Now, if we understand history correctly, then I, I think we, we could see that there was a later time when he did accept Christ. But we can't preach half a gospel. 
And you can't depend on half a gospel. And so Paul doesn't talk about the good news. He doesn't bring about this great revelation of the righteousness of God until there is a deep and thorough understanding of the wrath of God. And so I think we need to take a lesson from that. So now, though, we look at the second revelation, and the second revelation is the righteousness of God. So um, uh, that we have the righteousness of God, which, by the way, is apart from the law. See, with the wrath of God, it comes through the law because the law exposes our sinfulness. But the righteousness, as it says in verse 21, comes apart from the law. In other words, the law has already done its job. If, it, if you realize that you're a sinner and you recognize uh, that you're, and you're begging for mercy, the law has done its job. Uh, it, it needs to stop, and now it's time for something else to come into play here. And uh, so it's the righteousness of God that is apart from the law. So what do we learn about the righteousness of God? The first thing it says about it in verse, in verse 21 the righteousness of God is that the law and the prophets are witnesses. The law and the prophets are witnesses. What does that mean? When you have a witness, it's someone who declares what something else is, uh, what something that's happened. It's a witness. If I've seen something that's happened, I can be a witness in an accident and so on. The law, referring to the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, really go from the book of Joshua to the book of uh, Malachi, or Second Chronicles in the Jewish order of the scriptures. And so you, you, um, uh, you look at the law and the prophets, and they're pointing to what Paul is about to reveal. The law, if you go all the way back to Genesis, the very beginning of scripture is going to point to what Paul is about to reveal, and that's the righteousness of God. So how does it do that? How does the law point to, to what Paul is talking about here in Romans 3? Well, let's think about it. When God first gave the law in written form, he gave it to Moses on two tablets of stone. We all know the story, right? And so Moses received the two tablets, but when he came down off of the mountain, even though they could see God in his, in his majesty carving the, the Ten Commandments up on the mountain, when he came down, what were the people of Israel doing? Yeah, they were singing and dancing and worshiping the golden calf. They were effectively breaking the, all three of the first three of the commandments. There, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. They were borrowing this god from Egypt. Um, thou shalt uh, not take the name of, or thou shalt not make any, Im- go, any carved image. Guess what? They carved this image. Uh, they shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. When they lifted up this carved image, they said, this is Elohim. This is God who brought you up out of Egypt. They're breaking all three of the Ten Commandments at one time. Right? And God was so frustrated with them. He, he was so angry at that point that he said to Moses, all right, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with just you. You, know, you usually don't hear that in, the, in Sunday school lessons with a, in, the, in kids' church, right? We kind of bypass that part of the story. But hopefully you know that story by now. God said, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. And Moses says, but what about the, the nations around us? And the testimony it would have. They'll think that you're weak. And uh, God knew the argument ahead of time. He was, it's this interplay that he had with Moses. And, and he said, okay. But they can't come straight with me. There's, there's a break in the, in the relationship between God and his people. So God says, here's, there, here's how we're going to fix it. And that's when he sets up the tabernacle. You know what the tabernacle actually is? It's a diagram. It's a diagram. God's saying, this is how you come from where you are as a sinner and come to the presence of me. And this is what, what Paul's talking about. This is what points to Jesus Christ. The law predicts the righteousness of God. How do you become righteous again when you're sinners? 
And so when you look at the, the diagram, uh, this, is, this is a diagram of the, of the tabernacle. The he, in Hebrew, you read from right to left instead of from left to right. So it starts, uh, it starts on the eastern side, and it moves left, and where you start as the sinners. And, it, and, and if you look all the way on the opposite end, what do you have? The holy place, the presence of God. Inside there, you have the holy of holies, right? Uh, and, and inside there, you have three articles. You have um, the Ark of the Covenant, you have the table of showbread, you have uh, the candelabra, representing whom? This shouldn't be rocket science. There's three things in there, right? <laughs> Representing the Trinity, exactly. And, uh, and so for those who say the Trinity is only taught in the New Testament, sorry, it's not true. They go into the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant represents God the Father. The table of showbread represents Jesus Christ. And the candelabra represents the Holy Spirit. How do you get from where, where you are as a sinner to there? God just puts a little diagram for them in the Old Testament. And so the first thing you come to is what? It's an altar where sacrifices are being made. First thing we learn, you can't earn your salvation. Somebody has to pay the price for you. We call it a substitutionary atonement. Someone has to do it for you. They did it with lambs at that point. Then, uh, uh, so they would, they would sacrifice lambs, spotless lambs, which is important, spotless lambs, perfect lambs, because it's pointing to whom? To Jesus Christ. And, and from there, then the next thing, there was the labor. Uh, and this is where you would wash up after the sacrifice. There's this idea of cleansing. And, and they would cleanse from there. And then the, the high priest would go into the holy place. And, and through offering incense, which Hebrews tell us represents prayer. At, at that point, once a year, he was able to go into the holy of holies. And once again, have access to God. So he lays out this, this map of salvation in the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, guess what? Everything that this has been pointing to is about to happen. I mean, you're about to, it's about to be revealed. You're about to get it and see how it all fits together. And, and so that's, that's the diagram. So what does that mean? What's the altar mean? Well, that's where the forgiveness through sacrifice comes, uh, comes to play. The labor, that's where the cleansing took place, took place, the cleansing. What does 1 John, by the way, you take a New Testament verse, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to... Forgive us of our sins and to? Has the system changed between testaments? No, it's the exact same system of salvation. And he, and he, he lays it out very clearly. We're going to see that as we study salvation very clearly um, through Romans 4 as well. And, and so we see this forgiveness, this cleansing. And, and that's what he's talking about. So when he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is, is revealed, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. You think it comes through faith. Uh, so the first thing we learn is that the law and prophets are, t- are witnesses. Secondly, we learn that righteousness of God comes through faith. Faith tells us it's not based on works. It's, not, it's apart from the law, so that even obedience to the law will not get you into heaven. It comes through faith. It also tells us that it's exclusive. What did he say? It is to all and on all who believe. It is exclusive. If you want to know why the world hates Christians, here it is. It's exclusive. It's only for those who believe. It's not for everybody. Not everyone is going to enjoy and receive the benefits 
that we just sang about the grace of God. Everyone can, but not everyone will. Does that make sense? No one likes it when it's exclusive. But it's exclusive, but yet it's freely offered. It's for anyone. And that's why we are without excuse. You know, when it says um, in, um, in the verse, actually, let me go back. Um, let me go back. I'll just go right here. Um, if we look at the verse um, 20, uh, 21 and 22, let's just start 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. One thing we don't necessarily see there quite as much in English is the connection between the word faith and believe. In Greek, the word faith and believe are the same root word. It's, it's just that believe is the noun, or I mean, excuse me, believe is the verb, and, and uh, faith is the noun. It's kind of like love in English. Love is our, our verb, or it's the noun, right? That's how it is in, in Greek here with word for believe. So it's through faith in Jesus, it's belief in Jesus. Now, in Greek, too, there's two words for in. So when it says to have faith in Jesus, there's two, two potential meanings for that. In English, we just use the word in. So I want to tell you which one it is. There's one sense of believing in something, which just means that you believe the facts about the person. If I were to ask you, for example, do you believe in Santa Claus? What am I asking? I'm asking if you believe he exists and that the stories about him are true. Right? That's not the sense that, that, that's not the sense that believing in is used here. Then there's another sense of believing in, is when you tell somebody, for example, I believe in you, what are you telling them? I'm putting my trust in you. I believe in you. I believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I, I, I'm, I'm a follower, right? That's the sense of the word faith here. So when it says it's exclusive, it is exclusive to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to come through faith. A lot of people are going to be surprised because they're going to say, I believe. If you go back to Matthew 7, many have cried, Lord, Lord. What does that mean? They've called. They've called Lord, Lord. They have that level of faith that says, oh, I believe in the facts of the gospel. What does James 2 say? Even the demons believe. So that's not it. It's believing in. That's a very different thing. It's, it's accepting Jesus Christ for who he is, believing in him, and saying, this is who I'm holding on to. This is my hope of salvation. It's belief in Jesus. And we go on to verse 23 and 24. And it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we understand that that's the wrath of God. It's being revealed because of that. But then he goes on, But we're being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad those words are in Romans chapter 3? We are justified freely. Freely. You know, when you, when you look at, at, at uh, righteousness of God, we understand it comes through faith, but it also comes by grace through Jesus. It comes through faith in Jesus, but by grace through Jesus. Through what he did as an act of grace for us. So we can't, we can't say, oh, we saved ourselves, right? Yes, we have to respond, but it's because of what Christ did his grace when Christ was on the cross, we sang about this, this this morning. Christ was on the cross, paying for your sins, every sin you've ever done, every sin you'll ever do, and for my sins and for everyone's sins. He was dying on the cross. Do you remember what was going on in the temple? Remember, the temple was just the building version of the tabernacle. 
Same diagram, same process of salvation. You had the altar, you had the labor, the whole thing, the, the holy place, the holy of holies. But if, if you remember, there was a curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies, showing that separation between God and man. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened to that curtain? It is a nine-inch thick curtain. And it tore from top to bottom. Tore. Why? Because now that separation between God and man has been removed. Because of the act of grace of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, suffering for my sins and for yours. If that doesn't get your blood moving, I don't know what does. That's the grace that we're singing about. It goes on to say in verse 25 and 26, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is not, that's an Old Testament concept word. The idea is that it's paid in full. The price is being paid in full. So God set us forth being propitiated by his blood. Jesus Christ dying on the cross through faith. That's our response. Why? To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. In other words, the, the lambs that they, they, were, they were sacrificing in the Old Testament, they didn't save. And God in his forbearance overlooked their sin for a time, waiting for the moment when Jesus Christ actually died and paid for those sins. It goes on to say then in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, when you really think about those two words, it's not just a play on words that's going on here. And, and it looks like a play on words in English. It's a play on words in Greek, too. And so when we look at this, he's, the, he's both just and the justifier. But when you actually take the time to think about those two concepts, it's hard to imagine them existing at the same time. They almost seem like you can be just or you can be the justifier, but you really can't be both at the same time. In fact, if God decided that he was going to be the justifier then he would simply forgive us of all of our sins, right? But if he had done that, if he just said, I'm just going to overlook everybody's sins, I'm just going to forgive those sins, he would be the justifier, but what would he not be? He would not be just, because sin would not be atoned for. It would not be propitiated. It would not be paid in full. And that would not be a just God. If a, if a judge were to say, from now on, I'm going to let everyone free. I'm not going to punish anyone for anything. Do you think he would get reelected or reappointed as a judge? I'd say, no. It's not just. And what would happen? So, so we have God being a justifier, but if he were to simply just forgive everything all the time for everything, that would not be just. Or you could look at it the other way. You could say, what if God were just? And he is. Then he could simply condemn us for our sins. We could spend eternity uh, uh, paying for the sins uh, that, we, that we've committed on earth, and guess what? God would be completely just in that. Amen? But then he wouldn't be the justifier. So how on earth can God be both the just and the justifier? And that's, that's the mystery that is revealed in the righteousness of God in Romans 3. He is just. Why? Because sin was paid for in full by Christ. God came down to earth, became flesh, became a human being, and died on the cross, a terrible death, to pay for our sins. And it's yeah. paid for in full. It's paid for. 
But yet he's also the justifier. Why? Because as he says, now salvation is offered for free. It is freely offered to anyone who is willing to believe. And that's the last thing it tells us. We learn that it is exclusive. It is exclusive to those who believe. And I think it's time for us to do a little checkup and, and think through, well, where are we? Are we genuinely saved? Did we ever come to a point where, where we were willing to, to, to humbly beg for mercy from our God? Do we really grasp that? I've asked one of our teens uh, to come up. In fact, uh, Caleb, where, where are you at? Caleb, can you just come up for, uh, for a moment? Caleb is one of our teens. He participated in uh, Teens Involved this last year. And I had the privilege of hearing him speak. And what he had to say fits, I think, really well with this message right now. <laughs> I'm sure that he's a little bit nervous. I told him to just dress like me. And he did, did he not? So, good job. I didn't, I didn't tell him to dress like me, but that's just coincidence, isn't it? But you know what? The message that he shares, that, that he's going to share with you for the next five, ten minutes here, is a, is a great opportunity of application of what we just read about in Romans 3. So would you pay attention to him for a moment and, 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 uh, and lend him your ears and let him share with you a challenge that the Lord has laid on his heart that I think is applicable to what we just studied in Romans. Thank you, Caleb. Concerned that an encounter with the great physician 
be too expensive. He might require them to give something up for his sake. Or others may stay away because of pride, and they want to prove that they can make it on their own. Then again, they may have a completely different reason, and that reason can be fear. They fear that he'll tell them that they are in bad shape. They don't want to face the dreaded diagnosis of sin. Let's turn to our Bibles in Mark. Let's turn to our Bibles to my text for today, Mark chapter two. Let's pray before we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, please speak to our hearts this message. Amen. In this chapter, Jesus had gone about healing and forgiving. In verse fourteen, Jesus met up with Levi, a tax collector, a person hated by the Jews. Jesus ate with Levi, whom we know to be Matthew and other publicans and sinners. The scribes and Pharisees saw him and felt in their place to fuss about it. Why would he eat with these type of people? They asked. Let's read about Jesus' response in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right there, we have Jesus' diagnosis of the situation each of us find ourselves in. We are sick and sinful, and unless something changes, we are doomed to eternal death and suffering. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's a pretty devastating diagnosis. But you might ask, How do we know? Does God have a way of showing us that we're sinners? Yes, He does. His law. Romans 3.20 says, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Just as a medical test can diagnose a deadly deadly illness you didn't know you had? God's law show us sin that we didn't know we had. For example, God's law commands, you shall have no other gods before me. So if you put something ahead of God, it means you're sick. Or God's law says not to lie. So every time you leave some, deceive someone, it's proof that you're sick. You may say, wait a minute. I don't feel sick. I feel like the picture of health. But that does not change the results of the objective test. If the medical tests show that you have cancer, then you have cancer no matter how you feel. And sin is like cancer. You may think you feel fine, but God's law turns up the slightest trace of sin in your life. James 2.10 says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend at one point, he is guilty of all. If God's law diagnoses you as a sinner in any respect, then the size or number of sin is almost beside the point. Just as a person who has the tiniest bit of cancer is doomed if nothing is done. If you have even the slightest sin in your life, and you do, then you're doomed if nothing is done. The diagnosis has been made. The great physician not only gives you the diagnosis, but praise God, he offers the cure. A blood test may be useful in pointing to your disease, he do, but it does nothing to cure it. Similarly, you may be tempted to think that God's law is the cure. If you can just do a better job of living right, you'll be okay. But no, God's law is only for diagnosing the problem, not curing it. The Bible 
says in Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What the law was powerless to do, God did when he sent the person of Jesus Christ to earth. Jesus went around calling even the worst sinners to follow him and receive forgiveness. He, he had meals with sinners of every kind. As we read in my text a moment ago, he welcomed one and all to find God's forgiveness in eternal life. Jesus went all the way to Calvary to die on the cross and raised from the grave three days later in order to provide a cure for these people. He shed his blood and he gave his life to overcome sin. And not just for these people, but every one of us here in this room here today. That is the cure for our sin sickness. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Friend, if you haven't had a visit with the great physician, today is the perfect day for you to admit to that sin. And accept Jesus' blood. Are you ready to be cured of your most terminal disease, sin? The blood of Jesus is God's cure for sin, the only cure. So how about it? Have you gone to the great physician? (coughs) Have you submitted to the diagnosis and admitted that you're a sinner? Have you accepted God's cure and put your trust in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross? If you want to be cured and live forever... It's the only way. Will you please bow your head? Thank you. Is there anyone here today who will say, I realize now that I am doomed because of my sin. I understand that God provided a cure when he sent Jesus Christ to take my sin upon himself on the cross of Calvary. I know that he is the only way for me to be forgiven. I want to accept him today as my personal Savior. If you'd like to do that, please raise your hand and I will pray for you. After I finish preaching, I'd like to talk to you and show you from God's word how how you'll be sure that you'll go to heaven. Christians, there is a whole world full of very sick people, hopeless people, full of sin who are doomed to hell. We know the cure and must be willing to share it. Are there any Christians here today who can think of one specific person whom you need to share Jesus Christ with? If you'd like to commit to telling that person about them, great physician. Can you please raise your hand? Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that if there is one person here today that that does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would seek me out so I could help them take care of that today. And I pray for us Christians that we would seek that one person out that we know is lost and lead them to you. Amen. It's a simple truth, isn't it? I want to say today is the day. If maybe you've realized something today, or maybe you realize that that you've never understood the depths of your sin, you ever understood that you have offended God, today is the day. You know, as we close the the service here in just a moment, I'm going to ask you just bow your heads one more time. If the Lord is speaking in your heart today, and you say, Pastor David, today is the day. 
want you to know we've got some people available. And they, they have a little lanyard. If you just work your way towards the back of the auditorium, and it just says, ask me. And they will be there. And they can show you from God's word if you have any questions. But don't leave today if the Lord's working on your heart right now. And also, I just want to say to, to those who are, are believers, you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. When is the last time that pondering the grace of God and the forgiveness of God has really broken your heart and caused you to be so overwhelmed with appreciation that you could not help but go out and tell others about Christ? I'll be honest. I don't think we get it. I don't think we get it. Or we would be out there leading so many people to Christ. <coughs> I think sometimes we forget Price, the high price that Christ paid for our sins. I am going to throw a curveball, if that's okay, to the to the worship team, and, and I'm going to ask if we could if we could sing instead of doing the song that we normally do, cleanse me. If we could sing uh, the Man of Sorrows song again. So, would you guys be willing to come forward and and, uh, and and prepare for that as I pray? But if the Lord is working in your heart, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, today is a day when when we sing together. Just get up, move out, right out of your seat and walk right out towards the back and someone will meet you there and show you from God's word. Or if the Lord has laid something else on your heart, or maybe you just want to say, Lord, I am so thankful for my salvation and you, you want to show it by coming forward today. No one's going to bother you up front, but you could come up front and just pray and thank the Lord for the salvation that he has given you. Feel free to do that at any point in this song. Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for... It's the truth of the gospel. I thank you that this salvation is offered freely, that you are just and that you are the justifier. I thank you and praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.